Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, what's going on? Um, I'm trying to get in my apartment, but I'm not able to get in. And um, I see, like, I'm just not able to get in. And I think my husband is injured. What you just heard was the 911 call placed by a woman who identified herself as Joya DeRuin. Joya was the wife of Martel DeRuin, the man she requested a welfare check on. Although Joya and Martel were separated, they were still part of one another's lives. Joya knew Martel well enough to know that it was odd that she hadn't heard from him, at least in theory. In reality, there's more to that 911 call than meets the eye, or ear as it may be. The woman calling wasn't actually Joya, and her identity wasn't the only detail she lied about. It's human nature to tell stories about our lives. They help us make sense of our experiences and of what sort of people we are. But sometimes the stories we tell ourselves don't necessarily represent the whole truth. After all, human beings are multifaceted, and we each have our own contradictory qualities. However, so far as Martel de Ruin was concerned, the narratives he told about himself seemed pretty spot on. He was an important fixture in his family, who joined the Air Force as a legacy enlistee, after another relative had also served in the military. In civilian life, Martel still took care of his loved ones, His mother, Melissa Davis, later described how Martel helped her during one of the darkest periods in her life. So again, I have two other sons, Skylar, he's in the military. Um, So he was in London. Trey plays basketball overseas. So Martel was the only one here. And he used to come down with me to Dallas. And because it was COVID, we couldn't go in. So he would come and sit with me in the car while my husband would go and have chemo and radiation. And um, then sometimes we would go have dinner if my husband was feeling up to it, because sometimes he would be tired, but he would stay with me. You know, he made sure that I was good. Professionally, Martel had big dreams of being a rapper, dreams that all things considered, didn't seem all that unrealistic or unachievable. Because you see, Martel was Beyonce's cousin. Yes, that Beyonce. But Martel wasn't interested in riding on his famous family members' coattails. In fact, he rarely brought up the connection. He only publicized it at his business partner's insistence. If Martel was going to make it big, and he thought he was, he wanted to do it on his own and he wanted to control his own narrative. And to all outward appearances, Martel's instincts in that regard were correct. By 2019, his career was taking off. Rapping under the name Cardone, he was making a splash in the San Antonio rap scene. His song Magic was a hit on Spotify with some 500,000 listens. On the verge of making it big, he signed a deal with a record label. He was a rising star, but as we know, 
Even the brightest star can fall. An aspiring artist like Martel had to always tweet and post on Instagram. And you can't get the kind of traction he had unless you're very active on social media. So it was unusual that in late January of 2021, he didn't say anything about an upcoming gig. He was supposed to be the headline act at a show on Saturday, January 30th, but he never posted anything to promote it. It was uncharacteristic enough to make his wife, Joya, feel anxious. Now, Joya and Martel were separated and had been for years, but they were still on good terms with one another, as she would later explain. I know it was unconventional, but we did have an agreement that, you know, if we weren't agreeing on things as far as future-wise, like I wanted the kids, I wanted a garden, a dog, things like that, and he wanted to pursue his music career, it's like, who am I to hinder him from doing that, and who is he to hinder me from pursuing that too? So it, it was what it was, and... We didn't file for divorce because maybe, you know, once you let something go, if it comes back, it's real, right? So we never knew if that could be possibility in the future. It was just space. They didn't work out as a married couple, but Martel and Joya still cared about one another deeply. And they were still close. So close, in fact, that some friends and family members didn't even know they were separated. So if anyone would have noticed that Martel was uncharacteristically unreachable, it was Joya, and he was impossible to get a hold of on January 26th, 2021. His stepmom called me, and she was like, have you heard from Martel? I've been trying to reach him. Um, I told her no. I had spoke to him, I believe, Friday night or Thursday night. I did his hair for him. He said, hey, I got a show coming up Saturday night. You know, he was really excited about it. So I told her that. I was like, well, he had a show. Maybe he's tired or, you know, at the time I was working from home. So I just, you know, tried to reach out to him. He wasn't answering his cell phone, text, no answer. Um, I know that had happened before where he broke his phone, um, probably dropped it in water or something like that. It wasn't working. So I emailed him. He, at that previous time, he emailed right back, but this time there wasn't even an email back. So um, that's when everybody got worried, like, what's going on? Joya even tried to initiate a FaceTime conversation with Martel, but he never picked up. None of it made any sense. It just wasn't like him not to answer. But when Joya called 911 to request a welfare check, the operators must have been surprised to hear from her. From their perspective, Joya had already called to check on Martel some four days before. San Antonio 911 
When police responded to the caller's request, they didn't find anything suspicious. They knocked on Martel's front door, and when no one answered, they simply moved along. Maybe they weren't more thorough because the person who called at 911 was apparently so confused. At least, that's what came across in the call. She didn't even seem to know Martel's address, and was only able to give it because the operator coached her answers, using her call tracing technology. But perhaps the biggest complication about that 911 call was that it was fake. The woman who identified herself as Joya was not actually Joya. The caller got basic facts about Martel and Joya's lives wrong during the call. In fact, she claimed the couple lived together, but they hadn't for a long time by that point. And when the operator asked her to confirm her information a second time, she stumbled over providing even the most basic responses once more. And what is your name? My name is Joya Durant. Spell the first name? Joya, C-A-O-I-A. As the real Joya would later explain, the caller couldn't get the pronunciation, let alone the spelling, of either name correct. Um, well, number one, she pronounced my name wrong. My last name is not Duran, it's Deruin. She spelled it wrong. My first name, you couldn't tell whether she was going to spell it with a G or a J. It's with a J. That's not all the caller got wrong. The 911 operator asked a few routine questions to determine how much danger Martel might actually be in. Does he have any medical issues or mental issues? Not that I know of. Okay, how old is he? 28. Again, the real Joya would later point out the inaccuracies during this exchange. And then Martel was not 28, he was 34. Um, just amongst a couple of other things that, you know, were in the tape, it just was all over the place. It wasn't the correct information at all. It's possible the caller wasn't intentionally lying about all of those details. Maybe she was confused, or perhaps she didn't know how to spell Joya's name in the first place, or how old Martel actually was. Perhaps she guessed. But even if the misinformation was an honest mistake, it stemmed from the caller's decision to obscure her own identity. Someone was misleading the police for her own reasons, and the manipulations would become clear once the real Joya Deruin tried to get in touch with Martel. When he failed to return any of her phone calls, texts, or the FaceTime call, Joya drove to Martel's house to investigate for herself. And it was around 1 p.m. on Tuesday, January 26th, when she pulled up to his front door. When I got there, it was just police cars everywhere. They wouldn't let anyone into his building. Um, and it was just like, man, I, I, this has to be bad. Like... If I can't even go in there, it has to be bad. Apparently, Martel's stepmother had also noticed that he wasn't active online or responding to calls or texts. So she'd called and asked for her own welfare check as well. And when the police opened the door to Martel's apartment, they realized that the call had quickly evolved from a simple welfare check to a complex criminal investigation because Martel Deruin was dead. This episode is proudly sponsored by Fabric by Gerber Life. Look, if you're a parent, then you've had to, like most of us, learn a lot of new skills to be able to provide for your family. 
And whether it's the never-ending mountains of laundry, meal planning for even the pickiest eater, or protecting your family's financial future. Look, life doesn't come with an instruction manual, but Fabric by Gerber Life provides an easy one-stop shop for your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies, plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. And the part that I love is that they have options. The Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So, join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also sponsored by Squarespace. Look, it goes without saying that I've been a loyal Squarespace customer for years. I've been using their platform to build websites and businesses on the internet, and I even used it to build the special website for our last Invisible Choir episode. I love Squarespace because it's super easy to use, and it actually has literal drag-and-drop functionality when you're building desktop and responsive mobile websites. The other thing I love are all of the easily integrated product functions that help keep your audience more engaged on your website. And with flexible website templates, you can get started with one of many professional website templates. That way you don't have to build your site from scratch. This is a function I use all the time. You can also easily build out your online store where you can sell products, whether they're physical, digital, or services. Squarespace has all of the tools you need to start selling online. They even have a new integrated custom merchandise function where you can easily sell custom merch and create a passive income stream that engages your audience and scales your brand and business. You can design the products and Squarespace will handle production, inventory, and shipping, saving you time and money. So if you're looking for an easy-to-use all-in-one solution to build out your brand or business online, go to squarespace.com slash choir for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code CHOIR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir and use code CHOIR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. On January 28, 2021, Martel DeRuin's stepmother and wife each called 911. They reported that they hadn't heard from Martel in days, and that that was unusual for him. They wanted the police to drop by his apartment and make sure he was okay. One of the officers who first reported to the scene was Detective Daniel Molina. Molina and his partner got a key to Martel's apartment, but it didn't work. They knew Martel was probably home, as his car was parked in his assigned spot outside. Molina thought that this was concerning. He requested that the building's maintenance team let him in. And while he waited for them to get the door open, he saw something even more worrisome. Yes, sir. At that point, when we were uh, trying to make entry into the apartment, we noticed uh, a hole in the, in the door. And uh, to me, initially, it wasn't apparent. It wasn't that obvious to me. There was a hole, but because these doors are brand new, they're solid, 
They're foam insulated, so you couldn't see transparency through that hole. Uh, so we did notice that it was apparent something, that hole was something significant, but we could, were not, we could not validate what exactly it was at that point. Molina and his partner had to wait while maintenance workers drilled another hole in Martel's door. But finally, they were able to get inside. They found Martel dead on the ground, blood pooled around his head. Later on, Molina described Martel's injuries as they appeared in crime scene photographs. Uh, again, that's a victim uh, laying in his, uh, right in his foyer, the entranceway to his apartment where he fell backwards. And from this vantage point and the photographs we've seen so far, have you seen, did you see any weapons near his body? No, sir. Martel had been dead for about four days by this point, since that original false 911 call placed by the woman claiming to be Joya DeRuin. But it didn't take police long to realize that the caller wasn't who she said she was. Some of Martel's neighbors reported they saw him with a woman the night he was killed. But when Joya arrived at the scene of the crime, those very same neighbors said she was not the woman he was with. Plus, it was clear she was stunned by the tragedy unfolding in front of her. It was just more of a, you know, still in my head, like praying and hoping like, you know, this is just something silly. I know it just is not what I think it is or, you know, what they're what they were insinuating. Nevertheless, the police did eventually question Joya, and they weren't leaving anything to chance. It was multiple times. Um, they were just coming up to me, checking on me, saying, hey, you know, this is where we're at so far. I did actually, um, was I was told to get in a police car to go, I guess, to one of their offices, and they asked me some questions there, too, and then brought me back to the scene. As for the caller's true identity, the police didn't have to dig too deep to figure out who she was. In an earlier clip from that 911 call, the woman calling herself Joya struggled to remember Martel's address. In fact, she gave a different street address at one point, and when police looked at that residence, they discovered that someone else used to live there, someone with a connection to Martel, his girlfriend, Sasha Scar. Sasha first met Martel around 2016. He was about to release a mixtape called Trunk Bang, and he was filming promotional content before its release. One day, he had messaged me on Instagram and requested if I could be in one of his music videos. While working on Martel's project, then 17-year-old Sasha noticed that despite Martel initially telling her that he was in his 20s, he appeared considerably older more likely in his early 30s. While working together, she told him that she too was an aspiring rapper, so he offered to mentor her, and she returned the favor by helping him out. Since she worked as a graphic designer, they soon developed a mutually beneficial relationship. He would even go on to produce one of Sasha Scar's albums. Um, I made flyers for his shows. I would help him record his music and we would collaborate with music together. Um, we started becoming really close friends 
after about two years, we became close. We would start hanging out a lot. We would start going out um, together, going out to eat and stuff like that. Eventually, sometime after Sasha turned 18, the two began dating. It's difficult to say much about their romantic relationship because Martel and Sasha were quite private about it. Private, but not secretive. You see, neither of them ever explicitly told Joya or other family members that they were a couple. But Joya had actually met Sasha on at least a few occasions. She later described one of their encounters, which was tense, but not because of Sasha's relationship with Martel. She seemed like she was either very shy or just hiding something. I remember um, I gave her a ride home one time, and um, she told me that Martel said that she could borrow some money. And then, so I let her borrow the money. I'm not really sure how much it was, maybe about 40 bucks, not much. But then I went home and I asked him about it. I said, hey, did you say that she could borrow money? He was like, I never said that. <laughs> so it kind of threw me off as she was, just wasn't being truthful about things. But that was the only encounter I had. Joya wasn't the only person who thought Sasha had a tendency to tell stories or embellish things. In fact, it's a theme we'll explore more later on. For now, all we need to know is that Joya and Martel were living in separate residences, and Sasha was still based in Austin. But when she came to San Antonio to visit, she routinely stayed with Martel. This happened at least a couple of times per month. He lived in an apartment complex called The Towers, which was a brand new building on La Cantera Parkway. It was the very same apartment where he was later found dead. In fact, Sasha was at his place the night of the murder. When we had eaten, that was when we decided to take a break from everything. And we ended up watching a show or movie. She testified that she was making dinner, drinking Hennessy, and smoking weed with Martel. Then a male business contact reached out to Sasha to talk about his work. I ended up getting a phone call from a photographer. Um, anything eventful with that phone call? No, it was just me and that photographer speaking about um, rec I'm sorry, say it again. recording one of my next music videos. Okay. At first, Sasha didn't think anything of the conversation. After all, it was just business. When she and the photographer wrapped up the call, she then went into the bedroom as it was time to turn in for the evening. But before Sasha even fell asleep, she claims Martel confronted her in a jealous rage. I was getting ready to go to sleep. I was scrolling on my phone and Martel came into the room and turned the lights on. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part, man. He came into the room and turned the lights on? Turned the lights on. Yes. If he turned the lights on, is it a fair assumption to say the lights were off when you were laying down? Yes. Okay. After that, <laughs> what happened? Um, he just asked me to leave his apartment. And you're on approach again? Yes. Thank you. Not that I remember if... I don't remember what he said. I know that we ended up getting into an argument. You had an argument? Yes. Okay. Um, did this... Was it a verbal argument? Yes. Okay. If you recall, what was he saying at the time? He was 
upset because he felt like I was on the phone with another man. Sasha claimed that she wasn't okay with being kicked out just because she'd spoken to another man on the phone. So she demanded Martel explain himself. Martel began collecting Sasha's things, most likely her clothing, her purse, and her phone. She snatched them back from him. The fight then escalated, and the two argued so loudly that neighbors later told police they could hear it through the walls. Then Martel allegedly became physically violent. When I had snatched my stuff from him, he had tackled me onto the bed, and for what felt like a long time, he was hitting me, choking me, until up to the point where I couldn't breathe. Um, And then the bed just broke all of a sudden. The collapsing bed actually saved Sasha. When Martel lost his grip and fell off of her, she scrambled away. While fleeing, she saw his handgun sitting on a table beside the broken bed. And seeing an opportunity, she seized it. Did you grab the weapon? Yes, I did. Okay. Why did you grab the weapon? I grabbed it to tell him. After I grabbed it, I told him, don't touch me. Okay. Were you in fear for your life at that point? Yes, I was. Okay. Sasha later testified under oath that she wasn't thinking clearly and that she didn't know what to do. Plus, she was panicking. Martel was still allegedly caught up in his possessiveness and continued on with the violent outburst. I started backing up out of the bedroom. When I backed up out of the bedroom, he started following me. I started grabbing... I started grabbing dishes out of the cabinets and throwing it in between us. Sasha hoped the shattered shards of ceramic and glass might prevent him from following her out of the bedroom. But after breaking the dishes across the kitchen floor, Sasha soon found herself trapped in the kitchen. So her back against the wall and still barefoot, her only path to escape was to climb over the top of the stone countertop. After the dishes had got broken, I had to go over the kitchen counter and that's when I just ran outside the door. You went over the kitchen counter? Yes. And then you went outside the door? Yes. Did you have a weapon with you still? Yes, I did. Finally, Sasha made her way outside, though she didn't even have the chance to grab any personal possessions except her cell phone. She left barefoot and didn't even put on any shoes or socks. Also, she still had Martel's gun in her hand. It was a terrible situation to be in, and it's understandable that Sasha still may not have been thinking clearly. It might never have occurred to her to report her assault to police or to knock on a neighbor's door and ask for help in the moment. Or at least, she didn't ask any neighbors for help related to the alleged abuse. She did, however, seek a different form of assistance. Um, What happened next is I just remember trying to get in contact with anybody that I could. How were you trying to get in contact with them? On my phone. On your phone? Yes. Um, what what types of people are you trying to get in contact with? Um, some of my friends that stayed in San Antonio. What happened next, ma'am? I realized that my phone was going to die, and I ended up knocking on a neighbor's door and asking for a charger. Okay. Were you able to get a phone charger? Yes. Uh, what happened next? 
Um, I ended up going to charge my phone in one of the hallways. It doesn't sound like any of Sasha's friends actually picked up, but we do know that she charged her phone there in the hallway for about five minutes. Once she had a bit more battery life, she still didn't phone 911. But given her current state of mind, we can't necessarily blame her for the way she responded to the alleged assault. But we can hold her accountable for what she did next. This episode is proudly brought to you by Microdose. So you've probably heard about microdosing. If not, just know that all sorts of people are microdosing daily to feel healthier and perform better. Now, I've never been a weed guy. In fact, there's no quicker way to convince me that the cashier at the grocery store is working for the FBI. But microdosing is different. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they really do taste great and make you feel amazing. I actually take one at night when I'm trying to wind down or when I start my creative writing. Not only do they help me wind down, but they also help keep me chill and sleep like a baby. And believe me, I've struggled with sleep for years. All around, I give Microdose a 5 out of 5 because they don't get you high. They help you relax at the end of a long day and get off the mental hamster wheel. So instead of spinning in one place, I'm just chilling and able to let go of the day's stresses without feeling lazy or hazy. And random citizens don't magically become FBI agents. Seriously, that's one thing I love about microdosing. It's that you don't lose control in any way. It helps you relax and feel better. And if you didn't know, microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code CHOIR to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description, but again, that's microdose.com, code CHOIR. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? Yeah, mine is like a roadblock sometimes, especially if I've been working on something or I've been trying to tackle a problem and I just cannot find the solution. All of a sudden, it's several nights in a row and I haven't slept because I can't turn my mind off. That's why I use therapy. Therapy helps you figure out what's holding you back so you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. And look, the thing I find probably most effective about therapy is that it gives someone with a completely objective perspective on your situation the ability to hear you out and offer up very real practical solutions and strategies for coping with whatever is causing your issues. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash InvisibleQuire today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash InvisibleQuire. BetterHelp. Sasha went back to Martel's door and pounded loudly on it. She claimed she still wanted to get her things back, but Martel didn't answer, so she kept shouting and hitting her fist against his door. Her frantic knocking drew the attention of another one of Martel's neighbors, Caroline Eichmann. Caroline was waiting for a DoorDash delivery at that time, and she mistook Sasha's knocking on Martel's door for the driver knocking on her own. Instead, Caroline looked outside and saw Sasha. 
She looked a little disoriented, a little frazzled, and once I realized that it wasn't my food, I just kind of apologized for interrupting, and I closed the door and went back inside. Had you seen that person before? Yes, I had. Although their interaction was brief, Sasha once again had an opportunity to ask for help. But again, she never took it. Did she say anything in response to your apology? She mentioned something along the lines that she was trying to get the attention of whoever was on the other side of the door. Once Caroline went back into her apartment, Sasha was on her own again, knocking on Martel's door and getting nowhere. When Martel still didn't answer, well, it's hard to say exactly what happened next. Later, when Sasha testified about the incident in court, she told numerous contradictory versions of the same story. In the first account, it sounded like a horrible accident had occurred. Um, describe for us how were you banging on the door? I was just banging on the door. I had the gun in my hands and I was banging on the door with the gun. You were banging on the door that had the firearm in your hands? Yes, I had my phone in one hand and I had the gun in the other hand. In this version of Sasha's story, the gun suddenly discharged while she was knocking on the door with the firearm in her fist. The bullet went directly through the entrance and into Martel's apartment, which is pretty hard to picture. How do you knock on a door while holding a gun that's pointed at the same door you're pounding on? It was a spatial improbability that the prosecution honed in on during Sasha's testimony. When they pressed her on it even further, she then told a different version of just how that gun went off. I had the gun in my hand and... The gun is in your hand. Yes. You're handling it the normal way somebody would, correct? Correct. And if you're banging on the door like this, the barrel's facing up, Mm -hmm. correct? Correct. You would agree with me that in order for the bullet to go through the door, the barrel would would have been downward, straightward, correct? Facing into the door? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So your testimony is the gun is like this, correct? Mm-hmm. And the bullet discharged, discharged, correct? It would have gone up, yes? I didn't say discharged at that point. Okay. Show me the moment it, it was discharged. After I was knocking. Show me with your hand, please. I just lifted it up and just shot. I didn't. You lifted it up and shot? Yes. You lifted it up and shot? Yes. Now Sasha's story had changed again. She claimed the gun didn't misfire at all, that it didn't go off by accident. She now claimed she shot the gun on purpose. When the lawyers tried again to clarify, she told a third different variation of that same story. So is it your testimony that you were shooting into the air? (coughs) Yes, sir. Hmm? I didn't necessarily shoot in the air, but I was just shooting up. As the weapon was rising, the shot, went, the shot went off? Yes. Okay, thank you. Sasha claims she just wanted to get Martel's attention, as he still hadn't opened the front door. And that's certainly one way to get someone's attention, to literally shoot a gun at them. During the eventual trial, there was yet a fourth version of that story presented to the jury. This one didn't come from Sasha's testimony, but from prosecuting attorney Ashley Jones. Ladies and gentlemen, we've all been in relationships. We've all had rough arguments. We've all had disagreements. We've all been caught banging on a door one time or another. 
Why are you banging on a door? Is it to get the other person to leave you alone? No, it's to get that person to come deal with you. The defendant knew exactly what she was doing. She was banging on the door to get Martel to come and deal with her. And then she shot him. That is murder. Regardless of whether Sasha was a cold-blooded killer or not, or if she discharged the firearm on accident, or if she was simply shooting to get her boyfriend's attention, Martel never responded. Not before his gun went off from outside of his apartment, and obviously not after. As Sasha couldn't actually see into Martel's apartment, it's likely she didn't realize that her bullet had ripped through the door and struck Martel right there where he stood, looking through the peephole just on the other side. She couldn't have known for sure that she had fatally shot him, but you have to imagine she at least suspected it was possible. She spent roughly an hour and a half trying to get Martel's attention, and the neighbor's testimony put that gunshot as occurring sometime around 9 p.m., but her call to 911 occurred about an hour and 45 minutes later at 10.45. Meanwhile, no one else intervened. In fact, it seemed no one else in that apartment complex even knew that a gun had been fired. One neighbor in particular, though, Pedro Padilla Jr., heard it, though he didn't think to report it. No, I heard it when I left my apartment and I pressed the elevator. And then once the elevator door dinged, I heard the shot. Did you scared? Yeah, but I didn't think, I just thought like, well, no, that was probably a, a fireworks, like that or about. Because sometimes it'll be like one or two fireworks and then it'll stop for a minute and then it'll, that's when like it gets more um, firework. So once you know more fireworks went off, you weren't concerned it was a gunshot? Well, I was going to dinner, so I wasn't, concerned about the fireworks. As the sole individual to make contact with police that evening, the limited and at times outright inaccurate or false information provided by Sasha Scar was all first responders had to go on. And because she had left the stairwell where she initially made the call and was not present at the crime scene on January 22nd when police first responded to Martel's apartment, they simply knocked at the door, noted no response, and moved on. Because, well, Sasha, pretending to be Joya via telephone, neglected to mention anything about that supposed physical altercation. And, uh, oh yeah, the fact that she fired a single round from Martel's handgun through the front door and into his apartment. As far as, like, I open, well, I didn't open the door, but I'm knocking on the door and there's, like, a dent in the door and I don't know what's going on because he's not answering Sasha told the dispatcher there was a hole or dent in Martel's door, but she never specified that it was a bullet hole. This adds an especially tragic element to the entire situation. If they had known that Martel had likely been shot and was laying inside injured, they might have made more of an effort to get inside. Perhaps they could have provided him life-saving treatment. In fairness, though, this also may not have been possible. Forensic investigator Samantha Evans testified in Martel's murder trial that he was hit squarely in the forehead, an injury which is typically and obviously not a survivable wound. 
Still, it's unclear how long it took Martel to die of his injuries. Unlikely as it is, it is possible he may have somehow survived if Sasha hadn't skewed her story and blatantly lied to cover up her own culpability. This projectile starts, it enters in the right upper forehead, it's going to travel through the head and brain, and it is going to be recovered on the left back side of the skull, kind of behind the ear. So assuming that standard anatomic position, the path of this bullet is going to be front to back, right to left, and downward. Downward. Hmm. If you recall, Sasha Scar in each of the four different variations of the gunshot story she provided during her own testimony, she claimed that the gun either went off accidentally or was fired upward into the air to get Martel's attention while she was furiously knocking at the door. But the bullet hole itself, located just a few inches above and to the left of the peephole on the door, combined with the injuries Martel had sustained, told a much different story. Medical examiner Dr. Samantha Evans, who you just heard, described the trajectory of the bullet entering Martel's forehead and moving through his brain in a downward path before coming to rest at the base of his skull. It appeared as though he was looking through that peephole on the door when the gun went off, suspiciously, in a manner that would indicate very intentional placement if one were, say, trying to get someone's attention before shooting them in the head through their own door. The trajectory of that bullet, along with the path it took through Martel's head and the placement of his body on the floor where he came to rest, did not mesh with the story Sasha Scar would eventually provide on the stand. Not one bit. But if Martel's death were truly an accident, why then would Sasha lie about the seemingly innocuous mundane details in this case, including her identity when first dialing 911 on January 22nd. In a later interview with CBS Austin, Joya suggested that Sasha gave the wrong name because she was trying to frame someone else entirely for the crime, namely herself. So, and not only do you commit this horrible crime, but then you try to blame it on someone else because you're a coward and you know that you were wrong. Ultimately, Sasha had many explanations for why she lied during that 911 call. She claimed that she gave Joya DeRuin's name because she didn't think police would let her into Martel's apartment. Sasha's name wasn't on the lease, so she figured that since he was technically still married to Joya, his wife's name probably was on that lease. It's an explanation that doesn't make much sense at all because, to all outward appearances, Sasha didn't even wait around for police to let her into Martel's apartment anyway. When the prosecuting attorney asked her to explain why she wasn't more honest with that 911 operator, Sasha gave a rather uninspiring answer. You didn't tell the operator that you shot through the door? No, I didn't. So it'd be fair to say that about a significant event involving a gun involving Martel... You lied about somebody you cared about. You lied. He could have, if you, we don't know. Or let's say you had a concern that he was shot in another part of his body. You could have told 911, hey, this is what happened. Gun went through. Bullet went through. I'm concerned that he's really hurt. Steps could have been taken to save his life if he had been shot somewhere else, correct? 
Correct. And you see, from my standpoint, it doesn't necessarily see that you're terribly concerned for his safety. Well, I didn't necessarily lie about what happened. I just didn't say everything. That's fair. That's a fair point. You did not say everything. I submit to you, I submit, I submit this. You're not saying fully everything what happened on that night. You're saying portions of it. Mm-hmm. What if this entire incident were one tragic fluke? I mean, we talk about the effects trauma has on memory and decision-making all the time on this podcast. Sure, Sasha's story might seem reasonable enough. What if I were to tell you that this wasn't the first time Sasha Scar had lied to police about her involvement in a deadly shooting? See, in November of 2019, Sasha was dating a man named Andrew, and at the time, they both lived in Austin, Texas, and Sasha stayed with Andrew's mother when she didn't have any place else to live. That arrangement lasted several years, and it seems Sasha was friendly and personable enough during that time. Andrew's mother, Misty, later explained, She was quiet. She was meek. I didn't have any concerns about her whatsoever. But when Misty wasn't around, Sasha seemed to have a bit more of an aggressive streak. At some point, she and Andrew concocted a plan to rob a drug dealer, someone whose identity has never been made public. The evidence and statements from police suggests that Sasha reached out to the dealer to arrange a meetup to buy marijuana. On the afternoon of November 29, 2019, at just after 1.30 p.m., they met their intended victim in an apartment. According to reporting by NBC Austin, Andrew and Sasha met up with that dealer, shook hands, and then Andrew pulled a gun on him. He said, quote, don't move. But the dealer didn't listen. Fair enough, as he was being robbed and he had a gun sitting nearby on the couch. The man went for his own firearm, but Andrew shot first. The would-be robbery victim took a bullet to the leg as he fired back. At one point, Andrew and the dealer ended up wrestling on the floor, and though it's hard to say when, the dealer was hit again, this time in the chest. Perhaps it was the sheer adrenaline of what had just occurred, but the weed dealer didn't notice the life-threatening injury until later, after Sasha and Andrew had already fled. He ended up dialing 911 and had to be transported to a nearby hospital for emergency treatment. He would go on to survive. But somewhere along the way, Andrew was hit too, and the police found him and Sasha in their getaway car, and he was bleeding badly. Unfortunately, Andrew wasn't as lucky as the man he'd just tried to rob. Emergency medical personnel tried desperately to treat his wound, but it was simply too severe. He died there at the scene. Sasha was the only person to escape the gunfight unscathed, and she told a very different version of events to police when they questioned her about Andrew's death and the other man's injury. In her testimony, she laid all the blame squarely at Andrew's feet. The Austin American statesman recapped her story. Sasha claimed Andrew was the one who wanted to buy the weed, and Andrew was the one who set up the meeting with the drug dealer. She claimed she'd never met the man before. Sasha then went on to explain that she wasn't there for the drug deal or the shooting, explaining that she was waiting in the car when she heard gunfire. She then saw Andrew and the other man grappling for a weapon. Andrew climbed into her car, and then she drove away and called 911. It was a good story, but too bad for her, the police pulled cell phone records that clearly showed 
Sasha was the one who set up that meeting. And when the dealer recovered in the hospital, he told a version of events that fit the evidence much more cleanly. A version where Sasha was in on it all along. By the time investigators unearthed evidence that implicated a Sasha, she'd already skipped town to Converse, Texas, which is in the greater San Antonio metropolitan area. There, she was apprehended in December of 2019. She was out on bail when she fatally shot Martell just over a year later, and investigators had plenty of evidence putting her at the scene of Martell's homicide. A neighbor's ring doorbell captured the footage of her walking barefoot down a hallway, casually strolling with a gun in one hand and her phone in the other. They also identified her as the woman who'd made that mysterious 911 call, and it didn't take long for police to name her as the principal suspect in his death and to issue a warrant for her arrest. Well, initially when I first met uh, Mrs. DeRuin, uh, she did advise us that uh, her and Martell had been separated for a couple of years and that Martell was dating a young lady by the name of, of Sasha. And she showed us the social media page for Sasha and, and gave us that information. So we had that name, but we still didn't know for sure if that was who we were seeing in the video. Um, we were able by clothing description, uh, as you mentioned, to say that was the same person that the neighbor across from the victim's apartment was able to, to provide. After we were able to look at the video more closely and compare the um, images from her social media to those videos, we were able to identify some tattoos on her arm, and we're very confident that's who it was. Within hours of arriving that second time, police had a video of their suspect, a name, and a confirmed identity. Now, they just needed to find her. Eleven long days had passed between when Martel's body was initially discovered on January 26th and when Sasha was apprehended on February 6th. During that week and a half, the police issued several public calls for tips, hoping that anyone who had seen her could say precisely where she had gone. People flooded Sasha's public social media profiles, urging her to come forward. And while the world pressured Sasha to turn herself into police, she was seemingly already prepping for her defense. She took several photographs documenting the injuries she had allegedly sustained at Martel's hands. Same question, ma'am. Who is this and do you see any injuries? That is a photo of me and yes, I see injuries. Okay. Where to? Where are the injuries at? I'm sorry. There is a bruised eye and there are scratches on my neck. Thank you, ma'am. Then on February 6th, 2021, Sasha Scar surrendered to police. From her arrest to the time of her eventual trial, she maintained that the homicide was an accident. She admitted that she didn't make great decisions on the night of Martel's death, but she was panicking, and as she would later explain it, this wasn't the first time he had assaulted her. Prior to this night, had you and Martel ever had uh, any other fights? Yes. All right. How many, how many times did y'all fight, if you know? Just physically one other time. And it was physical? Yes. Did he hit you? Yes. What else did he do? He pulled his gun out on me. Do you remember approximately what that was? 
Um, approximately it was a month or two before this incident. When it eventually came time for Sasha Scar to make her appearance in the courtroom, she didn't have a lot of support. Though there were plenty of witnesses who described Martel in very different terms from the violent, jealous abuser that Sasha portrayed in her account. Martel's mother and wife spoke warmly about how kind and gentle he was, and the newspapers were filled with more statements from others who praised him. The music studio owner Brian Mitchell also said the following. I couldn't believe Martel was murdered. I thought they had the wrong person. It's like hurting a butterfly. Ultimately, jurors had to sift between the testimony from Martel's friends and family members and that provided by Sasha, who had so little to say in her own defense. Here's what her attorney argued during his opening statement. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you all are doing well. We had a good lunch, and thank you all for being here throughout this process. You've heard a lot of evidence before you. You've heard the what, you put the when, the where. Now you're going to hear about the why. I want you to pay attention during the state's case, in, I'm sorry, to the defense's uh, case in chief. You're going to hear from Ms. Sasha Scar herself, and you're going to hear a version of events that happened that night. We're going to leave it up to you to make that decision. And ultimately, at the end, we believe you'll return the only verdict that makes sense, which is not guilty as to murder. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. That was it. The entire opening statement lasted a scant 35 seconds, and Sasha was the only witness to testify in her defense. Scar was facing charges for both murder and manslaughter, essentially if the jury believed that Martel's death was preventable, but that it was an accident, they could rule for the latter. To convict her for murder, however, they'd have to think she killed him intentionally and with purpose. And though we may never fully know what actually transpired inside of Martel de Ruin's apartment that January evening back in 2021, the prosecution made a short work of completely dismantling Sasha's claims that she fled the apartment in a desperate act of defiance and self-defense because, well, the evidence cast major doubt on those claims. The 2-3-1.1 and 2-3-2.1 would be the fingernail clippings that I retained. Um, and for those two samples, I did not find any DNA foreign to Martel de Ruin. And in layman's terms, that means what? That means that the only uh, DNA present on his fingernails that I was able to um, detect was his own DNA. There was nothing else, uh, no foreign DNA, nobody else present. So no blood from anybody else? Um, th there was no DNA. Though Sasha Scar did present photographs of multiple facial injuries as part of her own defense, including those depicting a black eye and notable scratches across her neck, the forensic technician who collected samples from Martel de Ruin's fingernails only identified one DNA profile beneath the nails. And perhaps, no surprise, it belonged to Martel. Had he violently choked and scratched Sasha's neck as she had previously depicted, he would likely have picked up another DNA profile beneath his fingernails during the struggle, that of his alleged victim, Sasha Scar. But that profile wasn't there. Then there was Sasha's claim that Martel, quote, snatched my stuff from me and then tackled me on the bed. If that were the case, one would have naturally expected to see Sasha's belongings strewn about the bedroom or on the bed itself. But all investigators found on the bed was a do-rag and one of Sasha's acrylic fingernails that had broken off. The sheets and comforter were balled up, leaving the exposed mattress beneath. 
and there was other evidence in the room that at least some type of struggle had occurred. But the lacking DNA profile beneath Martel's fingernails and two text messages that Martel sent to Sasha at 8.55 p.m., just moments before his murder while she stood out in the apartment complex hallway with his handgun, might well have been just enough to convince the jury that Sasha Scar was lying about the violent assault as well. Uh, it begins the first text, uh, bring my gun back and come back or and come get your stuff. You attacked me and defended myself all because I asked you to leave because you in my bed on the phone with N-words asking if you still tipsy, F-word is wrong with you, Shake SMH is a uh, means shaking my head. Uh, Can you read the second text message or the last text message that you sent? Yes, sir. You lost ASF shorty, but that's why ain't no helping somebody as lost as you, obviously. I told you take my cars and crib off your page. If you put here entertaining N-words and you put it back up anyway, SMH, shaking my head, when are you going to realize I don't FWU, I don't know what that means, um, like that if you put here entertaining N-words and staying with me at the same time? The prosecution brought up one other portion of Sasha's recollection of events that at best seemed highly unlikely. Remember, she testified on the stand that after grabbing Martel's gun and fleeing the apartment, she also grabbed several plates and glasses and began breaking them on the kitchen floor on her way out, only to find that she had inadvertently trapped herself in the kitchen. Still barefoot, she claimed she was forced to jump or climb over the large kitchen island counter. The only problem with that story was that the kitchen counter Sasha Scar had allegedly frantically climbed over in an effort to escape Martel's violent assault was neatly set with four decorative place settings, complete with plates, bowls, and all. And all four of those settings, which completely covered the entire span of that kitchen counter, were left completely undisturbed, along with a neatly placed plant in a glass vase. You said there was more room in the counter. Let's yes. take a look at that. Let me show you State's Exhibit number 26. State's Exhibit number 26, we have no room at the end of the counter. It seems physically impossible for you to leap over it. From this angle, you would agree with that, correct? It might seem like it. Maybe it was because Sasha's defense was so minimal, or perhaps the jury thought the evidence of her guilt was overwhelming. Regardless, Sasha Scar was found guilty of murder. Her sentence... 55 years in prison. If you take Sasha Scar's testimony at her word, this was an unfortunate end to a horrible tragedy. Her story is one of domestic assault, terrible trauma, a deadly accident, and a brutal punishment. But that's just one side of this story, a side that downplays her past involvement in violent crimes and all the opportunities she had to simply walk away from her alleged assault without ever returning to that apartment door. Once she escaped, Sasha was no longer in immediate danger. She had time to calm down as she tried to reach her friends and family, locating a phone charger, and then charging her phone in the hallway for the next five minutes or so. She didn't need to go back to Martel's apartment. 
In fact, her decision to return and knock on that door and pull the trigger further escalated the altercation and led to an unnecessary and tragic death. So this homicide comes with two stories, one where Sasha Scar is a victim and another where she is a cold-blooded killer. The only other person in this case who knows the truth was lured to his front door, where he stood for a moment peering through the peephole when a shot rang out. It is incredibly difficult to reconcile the various narratives presented about Martel de Ruin during Sasha Scar's murder trial. Sasha's account of physical abuse doesn't integrate with the other testimony of Martel's friends and family, who described him as sweet and gentle. But as we all know, people are complicated, and despite all outward appearances, sometimes we never truly know what goes on behind closed doors, unless we are behind those doors ourselves, because peoples only allow for one-way viewing. The week before this case went to trial, Sasha Scar was offered a last-minute plea deal by the prosecution, plead guilty to murder, in exchange for 20 years in prison. She declined that offer and decided to take the case to trial, and as a result of her conviction, will serve the next 55 years in prison. Immediately following the guilty verdict, Sasha packed up all of her belongings in a box to the left and was ushered off to the Lucille Plain State Jail in Dayton, Texas, where she will remain incarcerated until she is 72 years old. (laughs) 